Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Geek Rant, episode 356, Give Till It Hurts, recorded April 14th, 2019, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I'm your host, Mark, on occasion known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroach. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Ostage Air Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back to the Faithful Opiates, where it all began. Hello. You know, after all these years, is it is it maybe time to just drop the whole middle name thing, the monikers? It, it, it seems to be getting a little, little tiresome. What do you think? Eh. Sure, yeah. I mean, excellent ringing endorsement there, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you guys want to go with, I'm cool with that. I, I mean, the gooey kid fit when we were the Everyday Linux podcast, right. but now that we're Geek Rant, you know, I, I need to be, I guess I could become like a uh, tinfoil suit man or something, <laughs> you know. I, I was talking to somebody to, just to just to show that, you know, we not not only do we not advertise i don't even advertise to people who've known me for years i'm talking to somebody today who's known me for a very long time and i mentioned something about recording a podcast tonight and they're like you do a podcast <laughs> yes how long you've been doing that oh nine and a half years really yeah yeah <laughs> so there you go and, and Man, i can't i can't even give my coffee away to people who like coffee <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to listen to a podcast I do. My friend loves coffee. Hey, can I give you some? No. Yeah. Like, I, you don't, no, I don't want it. I'm just like, well, fine. Go waste your money at Starbucks. But Of course, then the follow-up was, do you make any money? I said, well, it doesn't cost me anything most years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Break even. Yeah. So I, uh, just a quick thing. Um, the National Geographic last year i think uh did a documentary that was in uh in theaters called free solo it, it is it is now available in the little red discs from uh netflix it'll be available streaming uh sometime after that but it's about a guy whose name i don't even remember uh he was the first to climb um el capitan in uh yosemite national park uh 2850 feet uh free solo free meaning no ropes no apparatus, just himself and a little bag of chalk tied around his waist, solo meaning alone with no support system. Um, he's the only person to ever do it. Um, and, you know, I, I remember reading about this when it happened in 2017, uh, but watch the, the documentary, the, the filmography, the, the way it's put together. Of course, it's National Geographic, so you know it's going to be beautiful. But it is so harrowing that even though I know he made it, even though I've seen interviews with him after the fact, the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, oh, he's talking about, oh, oh. And, and I think something that can do that is pretty amazing. In fact, I was watching it with my daughters. None of them could even watch it. They were looking away from the screen. It was so heart-wrenching at these moments. And it's not over, overly dramatic. It's just watching the dude do the thing um, is so, uh, you know, just pulse uh, racing that uh, it's pretty impressive, even though you know he made it. So did they, like, did he do it again? Or was people just there watching him, and if he fell, he was going to die? That one. Yeah, so that's okay. uh, he had a camera crew with him. He, they, nobody knew when he was going to do it. Um, he'd climbed it, you know, like seventy times with ropes. Uh, Alex Honnold, there we go. Um, so thank you, Jinda. Uh, so he uh, 
Uh, and they wrapped a bunch of other stuff into the thing. Like they did brain scans of, you know, why would you want to do this? Is your brain physically different than everybody else's? Spoiler alert. Yes, it is. Um, and so he'd been there for months climbing it every day with ropes until he felt, you know, pretty confident. And then he just got up one morning, told his camera crew, today's the day. And so they were all, they had everything ready. Um, and uh, they went out and filmed it. And these were his buddies. They've been hanging out with him for years. And they're like, I'm watching this guy. And my job is to potentially record his death. Um, and so they talked about that too, you know, the emotional impact of that. And this, this one dude, he's got his camera set up, but his back is turned to the camera. He's like, I'm just trusting the camera because I can't watch this. Um, good. It's, it's well worth watching. Free solo. So you, sad you part can't is get that on Netflix. a lot more money if he had died. <laughs> You, what, you can't you, get that on Netflix yet? Not yet. I don't think it's streaming yet. Uh, it, it's on. Oh, okay. Usually the DVDs come out first and then. But I'm sure it's out there. I'm, you know, there's going to be some way you can either purchase it or otherwise acquire it. Um, but, you know, I recommend you wait until it's available. Um, but yeah, really, really worth watching. Cool. Sounds really interesting. Um, one of the scenes. Never mind. I'm not even going to go to it. Free solo, watch it. Um, and Seth, you had talked last week, uh, or maybe two weeks ago, about how cheap uh, large drives have become. Have you found out that cheap also means crappy? Uh, yes. So, uh, has I believe last year I was talking about how I plugged my uh, my backup drive in, and it said you need to format this drive before using it. And I went, "Oh crap! This is my backup strategy um, and my single use strategy." And so I spin righted it, and spin right came through. It worked, and so I thought, "Okay, I got to buy something." And of course, because I'm too cheap to spend forty dollars on a one terabyte drive, I'm I'm in Costco getting some coffee, um, beans, and I look, and they have a freaking five terabyte drive for a hundred dollars. And I thought okay, I can do five terabytes. So, uh, you know, I, so I, I plug it in, it works great one time. Um, and so when I plug my hard drive that I had spin righted in, um, one, it didn't work. So I was like, Oh, great. And then, uh, I didn't have the other hard drive. So I spin righted the hard drive the second time and I plugged in the five terabyte when this is the second time I've used it. Click, click, click. And I was just like, oh, crap, spin right, can't fix that. So uh, that was today. So um, at church I went, or after church I went, and I bought a one terabyte drive for like $50. And so now I have my backup drive going over to that. So now I have my data in two places. And I took the really critical stuff and moved it over to my hard drive. So I have it in three separate places, finally reaching the um, backup level. And uh, so, yeah, they kind of suck. Spin right is a bacon-saving machine. And, yeah, five terabyte hard drives suck don't buy them for um portable hard drive things yeah is that a two and a half inch drive um it's yeah basically here's here's the case it's in let's hold that up so you know my hand is bigger than the average hand so that's bigger than the small one but yeah it's a little bit bigger not huge I remember when those Seagate came out with those two and a half inch, five terabyte drives, because they're kind of a, a big thing for data centers, you know, because we can fit tons of those in one new servers. Um, yeah. And that was the max. When it hit that level, it was like, okay, now we're starting to talk storage, because yeah. in so, the past we were using the three and a halves. So the one terabyte is the small one, and the five terabyte is the big one. Uh, length and width are, the five is just, 
slightly bigger, but it's the depth. The five is basically twice the size. So, so in the race downward for price, um, the quality control is always the first thing to go. Quality control is expensive and and really serves no business impact because the return process, the RMA process, is cheaper than hiring quality quality control people. So it doesn't surprise me that this thing that you bought cheap at Costco has quality control issues. Yeah. You know, and also, I mean, it has more platters, so therefore it has more things to fail. And so the average time to failure is going to be shorter because there's more possibilities yeah. to fail. But yeah, um, I don't think five terabyte is ready to buy, ready for prime time uh, yet. So like I say, I've, I've got the one terabyte and I'm what I had forever was 500. And the reason I have the 500 is because when I bought it, that was really the biggest you could buy. Um, so it's been sitting in my backpack, you know, working for years. And, uh, and like I say, it's finally given up the ghost hard drive starting to go bad. Spin right fixes one sector, another sector goes bad and spin right fixes it. And so and by the way, I just did a quick search. Free Solo is available on Google Play, YouTube, Amazon Prime, Vudu, and Hulu subscription. So you can find it. Oh, okay. Sweet. Um, I don't know if it's available to buy, but it looks like you can rent it on Google Play for four bucks. Amazon Prime, about the same. So, yeah, worth worth renting for sure. Hmm. Cool. Um, all right. And because I clicked off of another tab... It's going to be seven or eight minutes before. There we go. Okay, it's coming back. Uh, so, um, Miles, you have a documentary that you want to review as well. Yeah, uh, I, I was waiting around for this for a while. It's one of those films that was a Kickstarter, and you know, it just took forever to come out. But it came out about three months ago. Um, it's called Play Money. Uh, it's done by a guy by the name of Dibney, I think uh, Julian Dibble. That's it. And um, it's really interesting because it, it it took it looks like this guy did this movie over the course of ten maybe twelve years, and what he 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 did a really interesting study he he studied how people in the um, massively multiplayer online role playing game community the guys who play like you know, EverQuest and World of Warcraft and all those sort of games, how they would spend real money to acquire, you know, digital items in the game, which um, on the surface doesn't sound that interesting in probably 2019, but it's kind of interesting in that it's, it's, a, it's a statement that says that we as a society are willing to spend physical money to buy virtual things and this guy did a movie from it starts the whole thing starts in about 2000 and 2001 really or maybe 2003 with some of the very very early games that were doing that and how this community associated to the games sort of came up with their own economy and their own way of buying these digital goods and and trading in them and, and it's a really interesting story particularly if you're looking at new ways that economies grow out of nothing. Um, he does, it's not, it's not a boring situation. It's a real story about people who got, who made a lot of money and got broke real fast. 
um, who got arrested, <laughs> who avoid getting arrested, um, you know, zero to hero and back to zero type stuff. It's how the Chinese uh, came in with their, you know, guys in these farms that were just playing the games like 24 hours a day and acquiring all these virtual things and then selling them for real money, uh, how that economy works. It, it's very interesting and it's very geeky. So um, if you enjoy if you enjoy that sort of thing, I think you can find it on uh, Amazon Prime Video, and you're going to have to pay money to watch it. Unfortunately, it's <gasps> one of those rental things. Yeah, I know. Um, but it's uh, I, I enjoyed it. It's really well worth it. Um, yeah, it's that's my thing for the week. Cool. All right, and just to keep in the uh, theme of media. Seth, I've honestly been very curious about this. Uh, Amazon Prime's latest, uh, one of their latest uh, uh, original series, Hannah. Black okay, Widow, well the, discount Black Widow? No, um, there was a movie a couple of years ago called Hannah. And this is basically that same story just expanded out for an eight-episode season. Um, I thought it was really good. There's a, There's... You know, the action in it is really good, but there's not a lot. It's uh, character-driven and story. Some of the things you just got to say, okay, this is the story writers wanted to throw in some drama here, but a couple of those things. Other than that, like the sto- the level of story I don't think was as good as the Jack Ryan, but like the fights and stuff were really impressive and very good to watch visually it's very tight really good um i was surprised i mean of course you know i mean it's 2019 so of course there's there's some sexuality in it but there i was i was expecting there would be more um and i was pleasantly surprised that i mean there, there there's some in there but it's integral to the story uh there's no really tna it's all kind of done by like um you know camera off to the side and stuff like that so i was surprised from that aspect how refreshing that was and then you know but hey there's some there's some blood and like people get their you know there's headshots that splatter and stuff like that so the graphical violence in it while there isn't a lot when it's there it's there um but overall a good movie um some of the the visuals are very good the story's not quite as good as jack ryan but still really good um i i binged watch all eight episodes saturday and um it was pretty good so hannah all right worth checking out and i don't want to spend much time on this i don't want to have any discussion about it i'm just gonna get on my offend people horse for just a moment now um you mentioned it's 2019 and you mentioned sexuality and and those two things can we please get over calling people inspirational just because they're gay right isn't that in itself a form of sexism or or bigotry when i'm watching american idol and Nobody talks about the fact that this dude can wail. They just talk about how brave he is because he's gay. Let's just get over this now. That is bigotry in itself. Stop. Talk about the guy's voice and not his sexuality. That's it. All I'm going to say about that. We can do a whole okay. show about that later if you want. But uh, yeah, That wasn't even what I was talking about. I know. Okay. It wasn't. Cool. It's just those two <laughs> phrases went in my mind, and, and that's what came out. Um, I'm just really frustrated with everywhere I look – celebrating the thing that the message is we're not supposed to notice but we're going to celebrate it that's noticing it right all right 
moving on. Uh, so last week, uh, I did sort of an, uh, an old school debate thing, and the guys, after we, were, after we were done, the guys thought that we didn't give the topic enough uh, time, enough opportunity to develop uh, a good uh, discussion. Uh, Seth often um, complains rightly that I don't give him time to think about things beforehand. I just spring him either two minutes before the show or during the show, and he doesn't have time to form cogent thoughts, which is an absolutely true and valid argument. I do that intentionally because he's one of the, he and Miles both are, are, are great at thinking on their feet, and I like the product of that thinking on their feet. So this time I've given them an entire week to not think about it until just before we went on the air. So there we go. Um, um, we're going to continue that discussion that I know they haven't thought about uh <laughs> since last week so but i'm not going to lead into anything i'm just if i don't even i'm not even going to give you a summary go listen to last week's show if you haven't listened to it but guys do you have any just opening thoughts Seth, I'll, I'll let you go first uh man you know i i don't know we should have went to a new topic because then i'd have an excuse um <laughs> <laughs> you know the thing is whenever we, we talk about helping people and i because I'm going through a situation where the the help that this person desperately needs would be viewed as hatred uh, at worst or insensitivity at best because they they scoff at the help and they expect it and if you don't give it then you're not doing the quote unquote Christian thing by loving them because love means meet their needs so they don't have to and when I don't want to meet someone's needs for them to turn around and use their money on vices. That is, I'm not going to pay for people's vices. Um, and if I'm, if I'm buying you toilet paper so that you can pay for your vices, that means I'm paying for your vices and I'm not going to do that. So sometimes helping people whenever, you know, it's easy to give money to a charity and, and help the starving kids in Africa. But when somebody is in your life, sometimes the helping thing is you're not getting another cent from me until you change. And I'll kick you out before I give you anything else if you're not going to change. And that's the loving thing to do because they're otherwise, they're just going to go on and continue to drain society rather than contributing something to it. Now, it's one thing, hey, you know, I'm changing and I'm trying and I'm starting out and I don't have anything. But, you know, Know, I'm working at McDonald's um, and that's the only thing I know how to do. Well, great. You're working and you're trying to make yourself better. Let me help you until you get to the place you can do it. That's totally different than someone who's just like, you owe it to me because you've been doing it for a while. And that's awful. Miles, thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I'm trying to find a time and a, a, a memory of when I've reached out and helped somebody. I, I do actually that a lot. And probably, to be honest, I probably do it more than I should because I often get tricked. And what I mean by that is that as somebody I see who I believe needs some assistance and I do the natural kind of reaction and just say, sure, here you go. And it, you know, it's whatever appears to be appropriate at the time. And I've done that so many times in my life and then found out that the guy should never have been given <laughs> anything in the first place, either didn't deserve it or uh, was going to squander it and spend it on drugs or alcohol or whatever. Um, but I've done it anyway and then I walk away feeling like, well, what did I learn from that experience and then I need to find out I'll do it again the next time. I'm not saying that I'm a sucker. I'm not like that, but 
if I, what I would appreciate with charity is the opportunity before I have to give to be able to research the situation and determine whether or not, A, it's valid, it's not a scam, and B, it is something that, you know, I agree with. I, I think that we all, I, I want to do the right thing and give a predefined amount per year. Um, it's like a budget. Um, but I want to give it where it has the greatest level of efficacy. And the problem is that I've found most of the time that I've done that, it hasn't given anywhere near the level of efficacy that I would have hoped. And it would have been better for me to spend my time than my money. And that's kind of where I ended up with. I don't, I also, I, when I was living in Los Angeles many, many years ago, um, the particular area of technology that I worked in was very niche. It was a very uh, there were not many organisations in the in the entire Southern California region that actually used people that worked in the area I practiced. And um, one of the uh, companies that did use it was it was like Save the Children Fund or one of these large charitable organisations. And I was invited into. Um, it wasn't. I wasn't uh, looking for a job. I was doing contract work, so you wouldn't have an interview per se. You, you'd have a meeting with them because they needed something done, and you needed to understand how their business worked in order to work out whether you could do it. So I went in and sat down for about half a day with these guys, and they kind of explained the ins the, the the way their business operated and how they distribute funds and how they had to they needed a computer system to manage where the money went. And very, very quickly, I started realizing that maybe about 5% of the money that they were getting actually went to an end recipient. All of the rest of the money ended up in administravia and salaries and costs. And and I walked away from that, A, not getting the work because I didn't particularly want it, and B, feeling really, really horrible about organizational charities. And so I kind of pledged to myself since then that if I'm going to give to somebody, it would be kind of a peer-to-peer thing where it will be the actual person who needs the benefit. I'll deal directly with them and cut out the middleman. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at with it. I don't know if that's relevant to what we were talking about, but it's just you asked me what was on my mind about right. it, so that's, that's it. You know, last week we talked about the uh, imperative, the moral imperative to give moral imperative to to give of your surplus uh you know of course the definition of surplus can can vary but uh uh you know seth brings up a point of of you know the misuse of what you give um i i would say that to a large extent i don't view that as being on me now the situation he described somebody he knows and loves um continuing to to feed that person, to to uh, uh, enable that person, would be destructive, and so at that point, you got to walk away. Um, and I, I totally get that. But you know, when I'm uh, giving money to a bum on the street, you know, and somebody says he's just going to take that and buy alcohol, that's fine. What he does with his money is his business, and once I give it to him, it's his money. I don't believe in giving money um, with strings attached. Again, most of the time. Um, you know, if it's say one of my kids and, and they're going to, you know, they've moved out and now they're going to move back. There's going to be rules there. They're going to be thing. I'm not going to fund their bad behavior, uh, to, to, you know, go back to Seth. Uh, but I've also been in a very particular situation in my life where it was like, you know, the drowning person pushes you under 
Um, and sometimes you've got to swim away to keep from two people drowning. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a situation I've been in before. The drowning person was taking me down. Uh, and so I had to swim away and watch them go down. Uh, and, and, you know, those are definitely the exceptions. I feel that often, though, we use those as excuses not to give when we know we should give. Right, we say, well, he's going to use it uh, badly anyway, or I can't, you know, afford to. Um, those things are often we know they're not true, or we don't know that they are true, and we use them as excuses not to give. And and just in my own life, I've decided to to give first and decide later whether that was the right thing. And that may seem unjudicious, but it's a matter of of uh, of my mindset. My mindset is first give. Because I, I have it to give. Um, and, you know, give from your excess. Don't give from your debt. You know, uh, if you are um, underwater yourself, you're in no position to give to somebody else. Um, now, I don't necessarily count that as if you've got $100,000 in student loan debt, you can't afford to donate to a local charity as well. You know, um, you got to you got to manage that sort of thing and, and figure out the long-term structured debt that isn't oppressive to you, um, in my opinion, is not an excuse to not give. Uh, oppressive debt that is sinking you is definitely something you should run from. You should you should run from it, as Dave Ramsey says, like a gazelle running from a lion. Uh, you should be focused on getting away from that oppressive debt. But I think most Americans, if I'm, I'm not all Americans, because I'm not one of them, but most Americans carry some level. Well, I do. I am. I have a mortgage. Most Americans carry some level of structured debt that is not oppressive to them. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a $200,000 house. I didn't have $200,000. Therefore I had to get a mortgage. It is a structured long-term debt that is no, not oppressive to me in any way. I have no trouble making it. And in fact, I will pay it off long before the 30 year term is up. That's debt, but it's certainly not oppressive and no reason not to give. I don't know that that was actually going anywhere. Just some stream of consciousness thought there. Yeah, that's, you know, if you're able to meet your monthly obligations and put a little away, you need to take some of what you're putting away and put it away into society. And uh, so, but, you know, yeah, if you're having to borrow, get a credit card advance to go help someone else, then you're hurting everybody involved. So, um, yeah. And, you know, maybe sometimes the best thing to give is um, knowledge and not um, money. You know, and maybe sometimes the best thing to give is um, education and not money. But I think that first you have to meet the immediate need and then you look for for the other thing. So the hungry guy doesn't care if you can get him a college degree. He cares about the fact that he's hungry. And I think um, I I may have mentioned it uh, on the last show, but I know I've mentioned it before. There's this attitude uh, and it's definitely an American thing, maybe a Western thing. uh, Other countries Tell me what you think. The idea is if, since I can't do everything, I shouldn't do anything. Um, and, you know, we definitely, when we look at our government spending, uh, people often say, you know, that is a drop in the bucket compared to X, Y, Z. And the idea there is that, you know, if you can't do everything, you shouldn't do anything. And that, that is, you know, perfection is the enemy of good enough thinking right there. And I think that that drives a lot of, of, uh, abstinence 
I can't think of a better word. You know, it is the it is the motivation factor, motivating factor for not being motivated is that I can't I don't I can't do enough. So I'm just not going to do anything. Well, I, you know, I mean, there is a shred of truth in that, but more often it's, we've made the emotional decision of, I would rather keep what I have because I might need it someday. And then we look for reasons and logic to justify that. And so, you know, I'm not going to help you because I don't want to, but I'm going to say it's a drop in the bucket compared to this and I can't do everything. So therefore it would be, you know, it would be beyond me to even try whenever the fact of the matter is I just didn't want to help. And that sounds, that sounds good. Uh, it's a good cop out. And so it's one of those, I mean, is there, is there some truth in it? Yes. But is it used as a cop out way? Yes. Well, okay. So let me, give you a contrarian position on that um that's shocking i'm so surprised that you're going to disagree <laughs> well okay i fundamentally I, I i'm kind of i hear the argument and i kind of naturally agree and understand where you're going with it and it feels right and it seems like the logical next conclusion would be that if you have an extra dollar in your pocket give it to somebody and that all makes sense but if you Roll back to the start when you, before you had a, you know, when you're leaving, working, living at home, for example, and you, before you get a job and before you take on all this life. And you think in terms of the fact that our social culture, our entire economic basis, our entire, the DNA of our society, US and, and every other Western world, uh, country is that we live by the mantra of have now pay later mm. and it happens in everything and we the first experience that kids get with that is student loans you know when they're 18 they're expected to sign a 20-year mortgage on something and they've never worked a day in their life to know what money is and you know i i have issues with that obviously but um and that we have this society that builds properties like houses in mass you know property developments and so on because people can get a mortgage to buy something that they don't yet own and yet they proudly say that's my house no it's not your house that's the bank's house you own a mortgage when you paid it off it's your house but until then it's not your house you're living in somebody else's house that that position isn't part of our social dialect it's not part of our language it's not our our syntax the same is true with cars. We don't buy a car. We get a loan and somebody else buys the car and we pay them the loan until it's paid off and then we own the title to the car. It's not our car. And and until we start realizing that we think we have all these things, we think we're rich, we think we're abundant in wealth, so much so that we have more than enough to give to other people, I would question that before we think about giving to other people, we might want to take a, a, you know, a leaf out of the notebook from the stewardess on the plane that says, in the case of the oxygen mask dropping from the ceiling, put yours on first before you try to help the person next to you. The reality is we're not helping ourselves to get out of this stupid mentality that we are rich when we're poor, we're debt enslaved, or that we've got houses, but we don't own them. Well, we've got great cars, but we don't own them. And if we 
reverse ourselves back to the position of saying, you know what, I'm a million dollars in debt. I've got a mortgage and cars and credit cards and student loans or whatever. I need to fix that problem first before I worry about Jim on the corner of the street there. And, and I, I know that sounds selfish and callous, but if we all did that, Jim wouldn't be on the street <laughs> because if Jim did that, he wouldn't be bankrupt, couldn't get a job holding up a cardboard sign on the side of the road going, I'm poor, please give me money. There's always a backstory to every Jim. There's always a backstory to everybody down on their luck. If it's because they took, you know, prescription drugs or heroin or crack or whatever, well, there's a backstory to that. And giving them a dollar doesn't solve their addiction problem. And if we, if we think before we just do this shoot from the hip, give money, or shoot from the hip, buy that thing, pay later, it's the same mentality. I think we have to look in the mirror and go, hang on a minute. Maybe I'm not as rich as I think I am. And maybe I do need to look after my own backyard before I try and clean up the neighbours. I don't know. I'm going to throw that out there as, you, as a counterposition to your, to your argument. I think there's room for both. Um, to extend your air, air uh, metaphor, you put your mask on, then you tend to the children around you. You don't wait until the plane comes safely into a landing before tending to your children. Um, and I think there's room for giving while setting your house right. Um, and you've got to, you know, you've got to do it intelligently, but I think that it's an important, uh, there's an important spiritual component, but not everybody who listens to this accepts spirituality as a thing. So I also think there's an important mental component and I think there's an important social component there to, um, taking care of those around you, even though you're not in tip top shape, you know, you can, there's room for giving while getting out of debt. Seth, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, like Miles, you said if you have a dollar, I would if if you pay all your expenses and everything, and you've got a dollar left over, well, you need to take a few pennies of that and pay ahead a little on your expenses. You know, take a few pennies and put it in savings, and then take a few pennies and give to someone else. So, giving to someone else, yeah, it shouldn't be all that you do, uh, but you know, I do think and. And, you know, and again, you know, like I say, I believe there's a moral imperative, but I also think that one, it is what would be considered also an enlightened self-interest, because if if you are able to help another person go from not making it to making it with a little bit left over, then there's then you've got two people working on fixing the world and, you know, instead of one. And so you've just cut your duty in half because you've got someone there to help you. So, again, <laughs> you, you don't you don't yeah, you don't take all of your excess and give it away because that wouldn't be prudent. Part of wisdom is to know that there will be a time where I won't have enough and I need to take a reasonable amount of precaution against that. You know, don't go out and dig a hundred by hundred by hundred cavern in your backyard and stock it with, you know, prepper food and supplies. But, you know, if you have enough canned goods to go a week or at least a couple of days, you know, that's an adequate thing for if something, if there's a short term uh, interruption in the um, food distribution system or something like that. So, you know, again, don't take all of your excess and give it. But if you take part of your excess and give it, you're actually helping yourself as well. 
Yeah, I, I can. I, I agree with you on that. I mean, that's a sort of fundamental. It's like a karma thing, right? You get back so much more than you give. Um, I just, I guess, what I'm concerned about is that it, it the the process of giving could be mistaken as a fallacy, uh, as a as a failure of our you know, have now pay later mentality in which really what we're doing is we're selling our future to somebody else. And I just, I just want to see people not do that. I want to see people regain control of their own future by not overextending themselves into money. And if they have debt, they should be paying their own debt off as mission one um, and get themselves to the point where they're not selling their future out to a third party. Because once you're at that place, holy cow, man, you could do so much good to so many people and not incur a level of debt. You know, look at the, the philanthropy that these, you know, Warren Buffetts and Bill Gates and people like that do. And the, the impact that they have is enormous. And I'm not saying that everybody is going to should be able to become a, a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett. But what I'm saying is that I'm sure they don't carry around a whole lot of debt of their own um, because, you know, they're billionaires, right? They, they own everything they ever want. It's the and now what is kicking in for them. And they have climbed up Maslow's hierarchy of needs so high now that they're just giving money to Africa or wherever. Um, but they're not dead enslaved to do that and we should all aim to be like that we should all aim to be uh, philanthropists in whatever capacity we have my point is just be be absolutely frank about your capacity because too many of us fall traps fall into the trap of assuming that selling a pay now you know sorry have now pay later is a mantra that the Western world live by and that if we don't stop that, both at a personal level, at a community level, and at a government level, we will go down very, very quickly. And then there's going to be a lot of charitable giving being needed, but we won't have any money to give it. Yeah, I, my I, my grandfather died when I was 13 years old. I didn't have a lot of adult conversations with my grandfather, and I don't remember the context of, of this conversation, but I do remember him telling me that it, when he came home from the war in 1945 uh, and got married, actually he was already married, but wanted to, to start a family and uh, uh, wanted to build a house, he went out and got a mortgage. And I remember vividly him telling me the terms were 50% down, the other 50% over five years. That was his mortgage term, and that was standard term um, uh, around that time. Um, if you think about that, that that uh, would would make sure that you have a, a much smaller house. You're going to spend much less money if you got to have half down now, and and you only got five years to pay out the half. So, you know, that's uh, most people wouldn't be able to afford their car on those terms today. Um, you know, let alone their house, and so this. Uh, to, to use your phrase, have now pay later thing is it's a post-war thing. It developed as as we you know needed to stoke the economy uh, and and we we built our economy on consumption and not on production. Um, and so now the the entire economy. I mentioned that I'm in a two hundred thousand dollar house. It, it, in 1945, uh, I would not have been able to afford this house. This this house is huge. Now I've got a, I've got five people, but probably you'd put twenty five people in a house this size. 
1945. Um, you know, everybody has their own bedroom. When does that happen? You know, in 1945. So we have the, the entire culture has modified itself to the point of, yeah, the, the, I once heard a salesman trying to get convince me to go into debt said the world runs on debt. And he truly believed that he wasn't, that wasn't just a sales pitch. I, I could tell he really meant what he said that the world runs on debt. And, and I, told him my world doesn't uh you can you can go sell that to wherever you want but my world doesn't run on debt um but it is interesting that uh, there is a definite correlation between the the drop in giving and the increase in consuming um you know this week is um another part of that uh you know was at some point around that time actually before that time before world war ii um the role of of giving the role of safety net was assumed by the government you know the the world fell into the u.s but most of the world but definitely the u.s fell into this uh, this economic depression that they could not pull themselves out of in fact it was the war that that pulled us out of that and really not even then it wasn't until about the 80s that we actually came out of that depression um but you know the government stepped in FDR's New Deal and said, you know, we will have a chicken in every pot. Uh, that seemed like a, that's so simple, right? I'm going to give you enough food to live a day. I'm going to give you a chicken. I'm going to make sure. But um, that, you know, the New Deal, the big government sort of thing, um, I think that sort of subsumed the concept of giving um, for a generation who then passed that on to that generation, you know, to tomorrow or Tuesday, uh, depending on where you live in the world, uh, is is time to pay the taxes here in the U.S. Uh, so the world is thinking right now a lot about their taxes. And most Americans are thinking about their tax refund. How much of my own money will I get back? And I'll consider it, uh, you know, I'll be excited about the fact that the mugger gave me back uh, cab fare. Um, and, but you know, we think in terms of the government will do that. We have the social safety net and that giving that my giving is done by the government. So by being taxed, I'm off the hook for any karmic debt I may owe because I am giving through my taxes. Um, you know, when, since when has the government done anything efficiently? Uh, certainly well, taking your tax money and turning it into charity, it's not efficient about. And stealing from me and giving to someone else is not giving. That's theft. I mean, well, it's not stealing when the government does it. The government has the right to, to to do that. They gave themselves that right. Well, I mean, stealing from stealing from people who pay taxes and giving to people who don't. I mean, you know, I mean, you can call it taxation, but it's just a form of theft because, you know, and, and granted, it's there because people don't want to take the time to run themselves we want somebody to tell us what to do when to do and how much of it we really need and so that way we can gripe about them rather than taking responsibility i mean hey you know oh it's it's mcdonald's fault that i'm fat nobody made me go to mcdonald's it's taco bell's nobody made me go to taco bell i chose to i choose to sit in my chair and do nothing rather than walk around rather than exercise society didn't make me fat those are good excuses as to why i'm fat but so you know and it's just like Oh, look, you know, my taxes take care of that so I don't have to, you know, somebody else's job and rather than ours. And again, you know, it's the same thing we've been talking about. Um, personal responsibility. Let, let's just let's tax and let the government do it. And, you know, and again, it's one of those things. The government can't afford to do it because it's running up a huge debt. If there were a surplus, I don't care if the surplus is one penny. 
every year. I wouldn't care how much giving was done uh, or, you know, how much welfare or, you know, social safety net. Pick whatever politically correct term you want to justify the theft to yourself. If there was a surplus at the end of the fiscal year, my problem wouldn't be nearly as big. But we can't go into debt to give to things. Um, you know, I mean, we would you, we would tell people you can't go in. If you're borrowing money from me to give to someone else, you're not the one who gave it. I am. And, you know, but yeah, oh, when the government does it, that's fine because it's the government. And so, I mean, it's just erg. Well, the 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 problem is that the government is a reflection on us. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that I'll go back to the, you know, have now pay later metaphor that, that personal edict is something that we all embrace without thought and at, at a group level, at a congressional level, at a government level, it is embraced on steroids. Um, you know, we, we have an, about an $84 trillion future debt obligation in terms of current debt and also Medicare and Social Security obligations that we cannot fund, period. And at the end of the day, if, if I'm looking at Jim on the corner of the street holding up his cardboard sign saying, you know, please give me money because I'm down on my luck. Um, yeah, what, what about every baby boomer in 2030 who's not going to be able to get Social Security? Are they all going to become Jim? Because they all signed up to give money over the course of their working life to a government that lived on the principle of, you know, have now, pay later. Um now, I know, you know, look, I'm a very libertarian thinker with this sort of thing, but I think at the end of the day, I my faith in government is at, at all-time low. I don't think that we should, as a society, rely on government to do anything more than the very basic things because clearly, at a groupthink level, they are taking our own dysfunctions and maximising them out at levels I've never seen. And, and I know for a fact that the only way that you can fund that level of debt obligation is either not to give a retiree a social security or a pension, which clearly is going to put them, it's going to put them in death, really, because they won't have any money to pay for anything. And if you don't give them Medicare, this is the time in their life when they need it the most, they're going to die. It's that simple. And at the end of the day, we, we will flagrantly go out there and buy that you know, new destroyer or that new plane um, without worrying about it. I was sitting at the IndyCar Grand Prix in Austin a couple of weeks ago, and they always do one of these, you know, the flyovers they do at these race meets where they bring a big plane. They put a B2 over the circuit of the Americas. I'm looking up at a UFO in the sky. This, this wing, this square-looking wing that is silent, that's just sitting there, and I'm thinking, wow. What the heck is that? That's like, it's a UFO. That's what it looked like. And I realized, you know, that's billion dollars. or Two billion. Multiple, sorry, two billion dollars. I'm looking at two billion dollars sitting in the sky, making everybody feel like, wow, I hope it doesn't drop a bomb on us. Um, that's where our money's going. And meanwhile, Jim's on the corner of the street with a cardboard sign and we're expected to give him coins. And yet, when we get old and we rely on social security, we didn't put enough money away. We're going to become Jim and we can't see. I, I, th this is where I come from the point of view of saying it, 
what help is really help? Is the coins to Jim so he doesn't starve today helping? Because it's sending a message to Jim that if he continues that practice for the next day, some other person is going to give him money so he can eat that day. And he continues and he continues. But Jim is always going to be the guy on the street corner with the cardboard sign. And unless we as a society embrace the fact that Jim would be, we could all become Jim if we don't pull our heads in and work hard and save our money <laughs> and not rely on government or defer charitable giving to government, we're going to become Jim. And that's not good for us and it's not good for Jim because he's going to be competing with 15 other Jims on that, for that very turf on the corner. Um, so, I don't, you know, is it, is it my, is, should it stop me giving for Jim? If Jim's about to fall over and die, I'm going to help Jim, right? That's just fine. I'm going to do that. But am I really helping Jim by giving him money all the time? Am, am I doing what you were saying, Seth? Am I, am I propping up those that choose to not take responsibility for themselves and rely on a third party to do it for them? Uh, are we just perpetuating that further? At what point should this insanity stop? Well, how do you stop it? I, I don't my, – my only thought is – you know, I'm, I've been thinking about that. I mean, to me, it's like if we're in this situation where we've got these massive future debt obligations we can't pay, how on earth are we going to do it? Are we as a country going to default on our own people? I don't think so. Are we going to borrow more? Well, no one's going to give us anything. And if the Federal Reserve is going to print more money, all that's going to do is reduce the efficacy of the existing money in the supply. So we're, we're now in a situation where we've incented institutions like banking to loan, but not to incent for saving. They don't pay anything on saving because interest rates are so low. So no one's got an incentive to put money away and save. But they do incent them to borrow because they can buy this money very cheap and then sell it and make a massive amount of money on the arbitrage. And so all that's doing is perpetuating the have now pay later principle and making people borrow more and more and more and trying to subconsciously tell us all it's okay. You're allowed to do this. No, it's not okay. We are selling our future. We are selling our future. And our future is precious. Just as Jim's future on the corner with his sign is precious, so is ours. And somehow somebody has to stand up to this insanity. I, I don't know how you do it. But at some point, I start understanding why people are renouncing their citizenship and going somewhere else. Because they don't think this place is going to be around in 10 years' time. And so, I know that sounds dire, but in relation to giving of surplus... I don't think we got any surplus to give and it's time now to give time and education and knowledge and information to everybody so we don't all fall into the trap and become Jim. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is you talk about we're selling our future. Have we already sold it? Do we need to buy it back before it becomes incalculable? Uh, anyway, way too expensive and we can't even afford to get it back. So, you know, I mean, cause the thing is like my niece, she just bought a car because hers basically gave up the ghost and it's a used car. And she was talking about, yeah, 72 months is the new, <laughs> it's just like, 
Dear Lord, why? That is the I average. Mean, the average car loan in the U.S. right now is seventy-two months. Yeah. And 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 look at it. I mean, the cars we buy are crap. They're overpriced hunks of garbage that are so ridiculously expensive hey this screw fell out of my engine oh well that screw it only cost five cents but it fell out of the middle it's gonna be five thousand dollars to put it back you know something stupid like that 72 months to buy a car is ridiculous i mean i don't know you know, I mean, it's like, you know, okay, I'm I'm a middle-aged guy, and I had no money in savings, and I realized, oh, crap, I got to put money in savings, so it's like, cut back on the expenditures, and okay, now I got to continue to reduce my debt while saving, cut back on the expenditures more, so my life sucks, because, you know, I'm making up for the fact that I went too long without money coming in and I didn't stop the money going out. So now if I want to be around in the future when I can't work, I got to save now and and get my debt down. So, you know, fun times, personal responsibility. We have to, we have to do it. And it's one of those things, you know, it's not the sexy answer of, you know, win the lottery or something stupid like that, but it's the, it's the old school way of do a little bit today so you've got less to do tomorrow. You know, get started on the process so you'll be further along than you were today. And, you know, put some time thinking in, you know, some, um, I don't remember who it was that said it, but if he only had an hour to chop a tree down, he would spend like the first 50 minutes sharpening his ax. So getting out and doing something just to be doing something, you know, take some time so you can do it right. Um, measure twice, cut once. So you don't have to go back to the store five times because you used up all of your lumber or pipe because you cut things wrong. Wow. It's, yeah. Uh analogy city out here cliches dropping left and right <laughs> poor jim is gonna die any day now um, <laughs> but th there's somebody listening to this podcast right now who is spent some time today scouring amazon or the internet and looking to buy i don't know a new phone or a new car or a, a tesla or what's whatever shiny flashing light object of the day is out there and, and we geeks, we people in technology and working in these fields, we tend to be suckers for this stuff. I mean, we buy way too much gear that we don't use. We find it sitting on the shelf. We sell it on eBay or we give it away to somebody. We give it to your brother-in-law or whatever the case is. But we do that. That's in our DNA. And maybe somebody who's about to go and repeat that process just heard Seth's story. And just said, you know what? I don't have enough money in savings. I don't have anything. If I lose my job tomorrow, I could be the guy on the corner of the street with the sign. And maybe before they go out there and they spend that money on that iPad or whatever it might be, how about they think, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe the one I've already got, I can make it last another year. I can make it last another two years. Maybe I don't need that new car. Maybe I can need to learn to, how to maintain a car better so I can get an extra 50,000 miles out of the thing. Um, that, that's, if, if you can just influence somebody in that minute way that means they've got an extra $1,000 that they can have in the bank or $2,000 because they, you know, they accumulate this practice over time, 
that's charity. <laughs> you've just done to somebody, you've just given them thousands of dollars, Seth, by telling them your story and allowing them to say, hang on, maybe I shouldn't buy that thing. Because one day they will lose their job. One day they will be in a car accident and they will not be able to work. And one day they're going to need to get through that position, that cash flow need. It might only be for a few weeks or a month or something, but they don't want to be a burden on their family. They don't want to have the wife have to go out and get a job or whatever. They want to be that guy, who, that stand-up provider for the family, but they just had to buy that thing. And maybe you just stopped them buying that thing. And by doing it, they put that money into some emergency savings account. And when that day came, they pulled themselves out of the, you know, they, they, they didn't fall over the end of the cliff. They pulled themselves up. See, that's charity. That's the I, best gift you could ever give somebody. I hope so. Yeah, I, I would love to help people. It's like when I do computer work, if I've done my job right, that person doesn't need to come back to me because I've told them what to do to avoid the thing that made me come out there the first time. And I mean, that's bad for my business. I'm not making a hundred dollars a month going and fixing up their messes, but I've helped somebody not screw up as much. And so, you know, that that's why I suck at the computer repair business because I like to fix the person and not just the problem. All right. I'm going to let that be the last word. Um, this conversation did not, did not go where I thought it would go. Um, but they rarely do. Um, (laughs) we, we had, we started with a discussion about giving and ended up with a discussion about keep everything you've got all the time forever. Um, (laughs) all right. So, uh, the only thing I have left to say is Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, on April the 12th, 1976, Ronald Wayne exits stage right. So Ronald Wayne is one of the three co-founders of Apple Computer, and he's probably the one you've never heard of. He left the company after just 11 days um, after 11 days after it was established. He sold his 10% share for $800. In his short time with the company, he illustrated the first logo. He wrote the company's partnership agreement and wrote the manual for the Apple One. He chose to leave the company because the partnership agreement imposed unlimited personal liability on all three co-founders, irregardless of which partner incurred the debt, which sounds kind of stupid on my on his part if he's the one who wrote it. Um, and unlike Jobs and Wozniak, he actually had personal assets that potential creditors could seize. Um, he had failed in the business earlier and taught him that. So the sad part is, and by 1982, so six years later, 10% was worth 1.5 billion, and in 2010, it was it was worth 22 billion. So, uh, is hindsight 2020, or is it 22 billion? And of course, today it would be a lot more. So the third wheel of the Apple triumvirate um, did not last that long. But he's the one we never heard of, and who knows, maybe. Uh, maybe Apple wouldn't have existed because of him. This is the first time I've ever heard of him. Yeah, he was the parental supervision. Um, you know, uh, Jobs and Wozniak were, you know, kids in the garage. He was the guy who owned a garage. Uh, right. And he came in and, and uh, helped fund some of their early stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Apple wouldn't have become what it was had he stayed because he would have advised them not to do the stupid, risky things they did. Right. And the stupid, risky things just happened to pay off big. I don't think he was mad about it. I mean, I've seen interviews with him over the years. Yeah, he doesn't really see that as a real lost opportunity because at that point in his life, it didn't represent an opportunity. It represented a boat anchor around his neck. Right. Good stuff. The, 
it, it is, you know, the other thing that's important to know is that from a statistical perspective, um, 95% of all small businesses fail within the first 18 months. And, uh, of you know, and back in those days, these guys were into a, an industry that hadn't even existed yet. This is computers that were really just, you know, b before them came calculators and CB radios, and now they're buzzing around with this computer thing, and nobody knew if anybody wanted it. You know, these guys were just hackers with circuit boards of stuff and impressing their friends. It wasn't a business. So if you were to put money into it and write up a share and then and then realize the risks associated here are enormous, um, I can I, – I don't – look, you always there's always that incredible – opportunity you know the thousand bagger or whatever it was where you put money in you get a thousand times your return in this case it's far more than that um they do exist but they are rare as hen's teeth and if you were investing back in those days in different ventures as he was i don't fault him for saying i can go this far but no further because that's danger zone, Will Robinson, and the, the numbers, the stats are that this would never get off the ground, and how it did is a miracle. <laughs> um, so we can't forget the number of failures that are out there that counterbalance these wonderful success stories, and that maybe, you know, it's easy to criticise the guy and say, well, look at you, man, you're a loser. You should have stuck on this thing and what What did you do? You know, no, uh, these, <laughs> I don't think of that at all. I think he made his, the best possible decision at the time he could have and, and this was a whole outlier. All right. And now, Seth, what, what do you have to end the show in style? All right, so this is a kind of since we were talking about Apple, and I want you to think a little differently. Um, this is actually a little an old web link, but it's still active as of today. Uh, from 2015, these guys made a cartogram, which is they took the entire world, but they scaled the countries by population. So um, it's an interesting look, you know, because we all know what the map of the world looks like. But, you know, here it is by population. Um, so kind of cool. I just, Canada barely exists. Right. It's, just, <laughs> it's thin red lines. No, it's the icing on America. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, That's yeah. funny. Yeah. And again, like I say, the data on it is like four years old now. But I thought it was interesting. And like I say, it's just another way to look at stuff. So more than one way to skin a cat, more than one way to skew data to suit your needs. It's my uh, high school advanced English teacher. Hi, Miss White. Once said, um, figures don't lie, but liars do a lot of figuring. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is a show where uh, we have talked about uh, giving and the importance of it, uh, or as Miles thinks, the absolute unimportance of never, ever doing it. Um, <laughs> so, um, Miles, uh, turn off your mic while I tell people or your uh, your headphones. So don't listen to this while I tell people why they should give to us. Um, this is not about charity. This is about paying for what you like. I hope you like this. You've been through set through an hour of this. You must have liked it, or you're trapped in the car on a long road trip, and Dad played it, and you don't have a choice. But uh, pay for what you like elementopi.com slash patreon or patreon.com slash elementopi both will get to the same place um and you um 
can, you know, pledge a buck. That's reasonable. I mean, you want to pledge a million dollars per show? I'm all in. Go right ahead. Uh, a buck a show. I think I think our time is worth a dollar. Um, I was talking to, uh, you know, earlier, was it before recording? I think it was today, uh, during the show. I was talking about the fact that I was having a conversation with somebody and they were uh, didn't know I podcasted. Um, and uh, one of the things, you know, they, they asked me, do you make a lot of money? And I said, you know, no. Um, but... Uh, completely lost my train of thought no idea what i was going to say there had something to do with patreon <laughs> but anyway oh yeah we were talking about the they asked me how much time i spent on this and i said well on average about 10 hours per show in pre-show prep uh doing the show itself uh post-production uh publishing and then you know the, the odd server maintenance here and there uh, uh you know about 500 hours a year averages out to about uh um 10 10 uh 10 hours a show roughly i mean those are rough numbers do you think 10 hours of my time is worth a dollar is is my time worth a dime an hour that's the question that i'm asking you i'm not asking for charity i'm asking you whether you think my time is worth a dime an hour if you do patreon.com slash element let me let me give you another one <laughs> so if if you're out there and you're worried about not giving money and you want to do it frugally, what's the Amazon link? Um, elementopi.com slash, or amazon.com slash elementopi. It's, it's a big long link, but if you go to our website, elementopi.com, click the Amazon link or just elementopi.com slash Amazon. Right. So next time, I know, I know you're out there and I know that you're going to be the guy who still will buy that iPad or that iPhone, and when you go on Amazon to do it, or wherever you shop, or if it's Amazon, use that link Mark just said. It won't cost you a dime more, but he'll get a little kickback, and that'll do, and th there you go. Now now your, your karma is going to be feeling much better, right? And all of a sudden, you, you're charitable, and you get your iPad. So if we can't solve your problem by saying, don't buy the iPad, how about you buy the iPad, but we get the Amazon link? Deal? <laughs> Sounds fair. Um, that when you sign up for an Amazon affiliate, they ask you what your business is, and things related to your business have a lower kickback. So the iPad would get me some. The refrigerator, way more. Just saying. Um, things that aren't tech-related, uh, much bigger kickback. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I think total last year, um, my Amazon receipts were the same as my server expenses. So, you know. Neither of them are huge, but you guys, by buying through Amazon, paid for my server hosting. That's fair. I didn't make anything, but I didn't lose anything. Anyway, elementopi.com. Tell us what you think about the show. Click the contact us button at the top of the page. You've all heard this before. If this is your first time listening to this show, go back and listen to another one and you'll hear the spiel. I'm not going to do the <laughs> spiel tonight. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Miles, Seth, as always, thanks for a great conversation. Uh, I'm going to say that's it for this episode of The Geek Rant. And remember, pay for what you like.